welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Good, mate. It's sunny Friday morning, so I'm looking forward to a sunny weekend, which is always nice. Yeah. In lockdown. Take the, the roof off the, the Jeep and park it in the driveway. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I spoke to, to my youngest brother who's in Western Australia and they've just yesterday announced 100 people gatherings and restaurants and bars opening and they're all out partying this weekend. Good for you. Good for you. We are nowhere near that here in Washington. They they are relaxing some restrictions here. They're starting today. I could get my hair cut um, if that was a thing I really cared a lot about. But uh. I mean, you can you can see my my webcam. I'm desperate need of my haircut. I do not trust home hairdressing. So I'm starting to look like someone from a Mathia movie right yeah. now with my slick back hair. I'm sure you're not alone. So um, it's been a quiet week in link collections. I think everyone is just exhausted, lying dead in a hole somewhere after build. Or those of us on the outside trying to digest everything that was given to us at Build, right? <laughs> That's true. There is so much content, and I don't think we did the greatest job of collating it all in one place. So there's on-demand videos on the Build site, and then you have to go hunt and peck for YouTube videos on the various different YouTube channels. So um, definitely check out the M365 developer YouTube channel for all the on-demand videos that were like pre-records of the event, but then all the live events are like in the Build session builder so check that out yep and and there's a few links that we put in last week's episode one with the fluid framework with sam so if you look at the show notes for that one you'll see our introductory links there for build we'll be dropping build announcements i think over the next couple episodes right as we got the the subject matter experts well, this the gift that keeps on giving finally all these pms have come out of the weeds and like, oh quick we gotta go get that person on the show as someone who he's continually busy is jason johnston in our team and um he's forever building samples and um more tutorials step-by-step tutorials which we hear lots and lots of feedback and can we can see the telemetry of usage on the background of people going through and learning just through kind of following steps which is honestly the easiest way i find it and even when i'm building demos for sessions like i just did one for the galactic summit that um, our friend spence harbour and addis hugo and mike fitzdomeris is on that one, I believe that they've got one come coming up next Tuesday. So when the show comes out on the Monday, it comes out on the Tuesday. So it's like the fourth or fifth of June. My demo idea for that, I wrote down as a script first of steps, and now I'm like, that should just be a tutorial. Like it was, you know, f- from file new or command line new. The one that he just released on Microsoft Learn is building an ASP.NET Core MVC application with Microsoft Graph. So um, if you are in the .NET world and want to see the easiest way to get plugged in that learn session is going to walk you through it from hand to hand what was out there in the community this week there's seen a lot of non non microsoft 365 stuff that's in, piqued my interest yes yeah, same here for me so uh, the first one i found is um victor villain of course victor is a friend of both of ours and has been on the show many times and and he posted a github action that will do an annotation in app insights when you release code which is kind of interesting um, I'm not sure if you've done a lot with the app insights, but annotations is kind of like the, the stepchild of it. it. There's no easy way to do it. And, and, and the code that you have to run does some wacky, make a call to a FW link and, and read the header to get the real API endpoint and do some wacky stuff. But once it's there, it's great to see in your app insights metrics chart, you can see they'll put a little, you know, bubble on the date of which you pushed your code. So you can see, hey, you know, I was having an issue where I, I you know, I'm seeing errors, but the errors didn't start until this release went. So maybe I pushed out a bug, right? So that'd be a great, it's a great capability there. Oh, okay. And then there's a, I won't link to it, but there was a companion Twitter argument. I put in air quotes that, that Victor and I had an AC about, um, he could have done this in PowerShell instead of writing some node crap, you know. Wait, AC <laughs> arguing on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, that was a great little tip. And, and um, yeah, actually uh, it, it, he did this for GitHub actions and, and um, maybe I'll find out the link. I found a link that does PowerShell. So if you're not in GitHub actions, if you're in uh, as though, did I say that right? A, a DevOps rep- pipeline, you could do something similar there as well. So pretty cool tip that Victor posted. So even though I tease him, great, great stuff as usual. And then another real cool uh, community 
uh, blog post I found was from Joel Rodriguez, and Joel does a lot of work in the PNP, but he posted the step-by-step -step setup for WSL2 to do for SPFX development. So WSL2, for those who don't know, is Windows subsystem for Linux, and the version 2 released with Windows 10 version 2004. And I think that's rolling out now as we, as we record. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, they call it like the May 2010 release. It was being pushed out globally. Yeah, worldwide, as they call it. But nice step-by-step -step here. If you really, I guess, want to do Linux and don't have a Mac, or in Joel's point here, he's finding that there's a significant performance improvement to running hmm. SPFX build I guess Gulp build uh, on Linux as opposed to Windows, which I would certainly believe. I don't think Node is the fastest application running on Windows, so it might be some benefits to there. I mean, that's why a lot of these Java de JavaScript developers will use Macs because it's running on Unix, right? Yes, that's my understanding. I have never had a Mac, but that's my understanding. So I do remember some of my Linux stuff back in the day. I know I can do ls minus a to replicate the dir command, <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of exhausts my uh, my knowledge quickly on that. And then but, you're done. <laughs> yeah, but PowerShell is cross-platform, so I know now. I just another command I've learned pwsh, and then I can just do things like I'm used to doing in do PowerShell. Do everything you're used to doing. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. There's enough stuff to learn. Uh, scripting languages and top of my list of things to learn but talking to powershell um i am in love now with creating azure id apps just with the command line rather than going into the ui and in the demo for that galactic summit session I, I do that right at the beginning and i just think it's just so much more straightforward like if you don't have to like click around a ui just run a command with a few settings and boosh you're in yeah you, you know another benefit of that so a long a while back i helped update the starter kit the pmp starter kit and i did the big surprise i did the line of business web part that's trying to connect to like <laughs> a, a line of business api and to do that sample you need to register an app for your line of business API. And of course, in the README, there's all these 18,000 steps to in the UI how to register it. And so it's on my to-do list to go put a little script in there, boom, done, register the app. You don't have to, yeah. you can focus on the code, not the, the ceremony, so. And then one other topic of Twitter this week, um, which I started, or two actually I'll cover quick, was um, uh, if you're not using Power Toys for Windows, uh, Clint Ruthkus actually rejoined Microsoft to lead up that from a PM perspective. It's basically a bunch of little cool add-ons for um, for Windows. I use it for something called Fancy Zones. In Windows 10, you can use the Windows left, right, Windows up, down keys to like send Windows either to the left snapped or right snapped or you know full screen with up. Um, but Fancy Zones allows you actually to build your own zones and they give you like custom ones out of the box and if you watch the keynote with Scott Hanselman well, that's how he was doing is like very neatly overlapped windows like on top of each other the way I've been using it is I went to my <laughs> went to my work got my ultra widescreen one of the because um, I was using two 4k screens and was my shoulders were starting to hurt so I'm getting old but sharing screens was proving or recording stuff is proving hard because you've basically got like 3,440 pixels by 1,440 pixels deep and you know that's not very friendly over teams and you should really only be recording at 1080p which is like 1920 by 1080 and so I basically just built some fancy zones one was like 1080p in the top left of my screen and then two other zones were basically half of that side by side so I could do demos side by side like that and rather than like just manually draw those out and guess and hopefully that they would be fitting in that bound recording um, it snapped to it just using those windows keys so um, power toys is really really awesome and then this one's just a little nit which you know for audio files and for anyone that kind of picks up on it please use dongles on your headsets with microsoft teams calls um, there are issues with just bluetoothing to a Windows machine, especially a Surface device, and especially if you have a Surface headphones, it'll sound like you're drowning in water. Uh, there's like this bubbly effect that happens, and I've noticed it more and more with calls I'm having at Microsoft, primarily because we all get services and a lot, a lot of teams in Microsoft gave out headphones. And so use your dongles if you've got one, and most headsets will come with them. And there was a bunch of people from Microsoft Teams chiming in 
to use certified headsets. And essentially, the only way you get certified sounds like you need a dongle. What, what do you use, Paul? What's your headset of choice? Well, so my first question is, how do I sound, right? <laughs> um, you sound great. Uh, yeah, okay. I have a Jabra 75, I think is what it is, or a Jabra 85. Let me look here. Well, it doesn't matter. But there is a a USB connection f- to a little base and the base has got yeah. separate power and then the headset is wireless to the base but it's not bluetooth yeah okay it's whatever that frequency is remember back in the day we had cordless telephones <laughs> in from your house <laughs> so it's whatever that higher megahertz setting I, I don't remember the technical specs but so i basically have a, a usb attached to my computer but a headset and i can hear things out to the backyard and you know through walls and all kinds of stuff so it's really uh you're like superhuman paul well, I you know remote work is not new for me, right? <laughs> and, and so that's one of these things I picked up when I uh, when I when it first came out years and years ago. I was doing a lot more remote. I was doing remote work for everybody, so I wanted to you know people to focus or, or not call me because they couldn't hear me. I wanted to make sure something was good. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's what I have. So, but it's plugged into my USB. There was an interesting thread on Twitter about that. Yeah, it's like, make sure you're not using Bluetooth to do it because it just seemed like, it sounds like you're on a really bad like 2G mobile network in a tunnel with cars driving in the tunnel at the same time. So sort it out, people. People using their Apple AirBuds to do calls are probably uh, suboptimal audio, huh? Yeah, unfortunately. Well, who's on this week's show? Because you interviewed them when I was busy at Build, I think. Yes, I interviewed Jeremy Lickness, and Jeremy is a PM in the .NET Data group, but he's done uh, a lot of work all kinds of places. Actually, I was looking, he has a uh, YouTube channel with over 70 videos regarding all kinds of stuff. But we talked, he posted on Twitter about how he used Blazor and WebAssembly to call into a secured service and that you know a lot of things perked my ears on that so we we certainly it's kind of a entry level get started what is blazer and web assembly and and how people can use it and and talking with stuff on that and so it certainly was a uh, interesting thing here and it piqued their interest and there, I actually saw there's another uh, I, I don't know if I include you in yet I have another guest who did Blazor to do a Teams tab so we'll, that's coming down the pipe as well yeah well uh, I guess that was uh, Tommy Golis who's a, a long time SharePoint oh, wow. uh, MVP cool. and so uh, yeah so Blazor and WebAssembly are you know the, the new .NET ASP.NET techniques or technologies to do uh, browser application so that Jeremy goes through the details on that and it was great to, to chat with him. So, uh, and a couple more in the can already queued up. So, uh, I mentioned we were kind of light on the, on the build links. So, uh, we certainly have got uh, yeah. stuff coming that, that's going to be interesting. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Have a good week. Right, you too. So, this week on the podcast, I have Jeremy Lickness. Welcome, Jeremy. Hello. Excited to be here. Great. Well, so I assume that your name might be new to a lot of our audience. So can you give us a a quick intro about yourself? Absolutely. Right now I work at Microsoft as a program manager for .NET Data. And what that means is we have a product called Entity Framework that I do a, a lot of work with. But it's really any way .NET developers interface with data. So whether it's over APIs, whether it's direct to SQL, MongoDB, Cosmos DB, anything in the data story, even some big data items. I've been at Microsoft for three years. I started out on the Cloud Advocate team, so I've done quite a bit in Azure and on the cloud. I love functions. Uh, those are That's probably my favorite way to do web app, static websites and, and functions. And before that, I was in consulting. I actually moved from Atlanta to the Seattle area about a year after I started with Microsoft, and I've really enjoyed it here. Well, great. That's great. And there's a lot of technologies there I want to talk about. But today, <laughs> we're going to start with, uh, I found, I was lurking on Twitter. I saw you post about using Blazor and WebAssembly to get to data. And that piqued my interest because it's an area that obviously is, is new and has a lot of potential, but may not be very uh, familiar to a lot of our folks. So let's start with what is Blazor and WebAssembly? Sure. I'll actually start with WebAssembly because Blazor is built on WebAssembly. There's a few flavors of, of Blazor, but WebAssembly is an amazing 
technology. That's the, the easiest way to put it. Think of it as a virtual machine that lives in your browser. It's a special type of virtual machine. We've had JavaScript forever, and JavaScript being a scripted language is has some challenges for optimization. There is a very advanced engine in every web browser that parses JavaScript code and does its best attempt to turn it into optimized native code, but because of the dynamic nature of the language and a few other reasons, it can only go so far. So WebAssembly is a standard. It's not a, a Microsoft technology. It's not a other company technology. It's a web browser standard. All of the modern versions of web browsers, so we're talking like Edge, Safari, uh, Firefox, Chrome, host WebAssembly both on desktop, Slate, and the phone. Now having said that, when you think of a virtual machine, it's a stack-based virtual machine. It has its own instruction set that it can run, and it also operates inside of a security sandbox. So it doesn't mean that I can write a piece of code that writes to a file system, for example, because that doesn't exist in the browser. In fact, WebAssembly is interesting, even though it's hosted in the browser, it can't actually do anything to the browser. It can't read uh, what's inside a, a tag. It can't post to JavaScript. It has to be set up with interfaces. So in other words, there's usually a lightweight JavaScript, we'll call it a shim, that stands between WebAssembly and the browser. So if I want to do something in WebAssembly, like send some data, let's say I render an image. WebAssembly is a great use case for that because it's bytecode, it can be highly optimized. It's a strongly typed virtual machine and it will allow me to, for example, do image manipulation very quickly. But I still have to send that buffer to JavaScript to turn it into an image object. So the power of having a instruction-based virtual machine is that you can use pretty much any language of your choice to target it. Very early on, C and C++ were, were built to compile to it, and everyone loves C and managing their own memory. And <laughs> so, so we know that that's what made it so popular. But other languages have come on board. Go works with it. Rust goes with it. And now with Blazor, we can target the .NET runtime. So what Blazor does is really two things. First, in conjunction with a version of Mono, which is really the, the .NET runtime. So for all practical purposes, think of a .NET runtime that supports .NET standard 2.0, and we can talk about what that means if, if we need to, to go into detail. But there's a runtime that implements the .NET framework in WebAssembly. Sounds like that's a lot of overhead for a web browser, but the browser actually handles it well. It's very optimized. By itself, because of that sandbox that I mentioned, that is not too effective because it can't render UI or do anything interesting. So what Blazor does is on top of that .NET runtime, it provides services to do things like template pages, like interoperate with JavaScript, etc. So at the end of the day, what you really have is without using any type of plugin, a version of the .NET framework running inside of the browser. And then Blazor provides all the services on top of that that allow you to create single page applications and it uses what's called Razor templates. And Razor is what web developers who may be using MVC with Razor are used to. So there's a server side version of Razor and that's nice because developers are already familiar with ASP.NET core development are already familiar with the style of templating HTML and, and style sheets and, and other, I guess, UI artifacts that are part of Blazor. Okay, and so uh, it sounds like to me that I could uh, correlate the Blazor bit with my JSX files in React, so to speak. It might have markup tags of some sort in there, and then the, the WebAssembly is running the code that's attached to it. Is that a fair enough statement, or is it, have I got it all screwed up? <laughs> no, that that's a, a great metaphor. It's exactly what happens. I'll, I'll create some templates, and I'll also run code. And then what Blazor does is it compiles that code to something that runs on WebAssembly, as well as compiles those templates to render as, at the end of the day, you end up with HTML, JavaScript, and CSS in the browser. But you don't have to write JavaScript. You can write everything in C-sharp. You can use a, you know, strongly typed 
language and use that to create the full web-based experience. And what's really nice is because it supports .NET Standard 2, it means most existing libraries can be pulled in without being recompiled and actually run in the browser as well. So that's a very powerful feature. Yeah, I, I want to get into that, but I, I just a little bit more now. You were mentioning there's a there's a sandbox, and if I if I'm thinking about what I'm doing in a single page app, I have code that's interactive. Right? It, when a button is clicked, it runs some code, or I might need to make a call out to some web service to get data. Now, does the sandbox prohibit that, or and or is Blazor helping me figure out what goes where? Yeah, so Blazor is the glue that, that figures that out. So by itself, for example, WebAssembly can't make a, a call to a web API. But in Blazor, you can write C-sharp code that gets compiled to WebAssembly to make that call. And what happens is that call gets stubbed out as an interface. And then the implementation of that interface is some JavaScript in the browser that maps that to using Fetch. Fetch is what's built into the browser to grab other resources, other HTTP calls, basically, and bring those pages or API, you know, JSON payloads back. And so what I can do is, without knowing any JavaScript, I can use the HTTP client, which is what .NET developers are familiar with to make web-based calls, and I can just use it the same way I'm used to using it in a console app, in a desktop app, WPF, Xamarin, whatever I'm using, I use it the exact same way. And then Blazor does that work of translating that to call from the browser's fetch component and then marshal those results back into the code that I've written, if that makes sense. Well, so what I'm hearing is I don't have to worry about it because some, someone smarter than me has already figured out how to make those inter exchanges happen. Is that fair enough? <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair enough. And what's really powerful about this is most of what you do in Blazor is, is ambient, meaning you code the way you want to code and all that translation is done for you. But there's also a library provided for JavaScript interop, which means that I can also make calls out to JavaScript. That means I can take a JavaScript library that has no relationship to Blazor at all and I can still implement it and make calls into it. So if there's some library that's a messaging library or some sort of, of tool that someone's already using, there is the capability, for example, if someone's relying heavily on a chart component that's a JavaScript-based chart component, you can actually wrap that in Blazor code and still render charts with that component, even though the bulk of your app is written in C-sharp. Nice. Okay. Yeah. That, I can. So let bringing forward any existing work that I've done can, can help me there. Okay. Now, so um, does that any specific requirement on the JavaScript side? Is it really any, like you mentioned before that .NET standard is supported, which I'm guessing is a .NET library, but if it's a JavaScript type of thing, does, is there any requirements there? Uh, it just needs to be a browser that supports WebAssembly, which Okay. WebAssembly became a standard, I believe, in 2017. Um, so it's been a few years, and I, I'm pretty sure within that year, all of the browsers had built-in implementation. So on phone, Slate, you know, things that regularly update, you're pretty good on desktop. Uh, it's not going to be supported in Internet Explorer, but if you're on the edge of edge, Firefox, Safari, Chrome, then, then you should be good. That's that's pretty sweet. Now, um, digging into like the .NET library bit, which uh, I know your blog post covered on that as well. So .NET standard, I think, is pretty well understood at, at this point. The, the, I guess what I'm getting at is what, one thing that, that I, I want to try to understand if I have .NET code that I'm running and I'm calling into some of these libraries, how, do I have to decide what runs on the server or what runs in the browser? Or is that part of that automatic parsing, compiling that happens for me? Uh, you do have to be aware of that. And that's actually a, a great question because there are two flavors of, of Blazor. There's what's called Blazor WebAssembly and Blazor Server. Blazor WebAssembly runs entirely in the browser. And so you're in a client server paradigm. I can't connect directly to a SQL server from the browser because it's a, a TCP implementation on a non-standard port, so the browser is just not going to allow that. So I would have to make an API call just like I would with a SPA application, right? So JavaScript app running in your browser has to call to the server and have the server do the work of talking to the database 
and return that for the most part. I found an exception, which is the blog post that you mentioned. We can talk about that in a minute, but there's also a version of Blazor called Blazor Server. Now these are very similar. In fact, I can take what's called a Razor class library, which is a library that includes code and templates, and I can share probably 80 to 90% of that library between a Blazor WebAssembly and a Blazor server project. Blazor server actually runs on the server and it generates a little bit of JavaScript in the client that sets up a SignalR connection. So it's a real-time connection between your browser and the server. It does all the same things WebAssembly does, but it does them on the server instead. So there's a few reasons why someone might do that. One of those is if they're doing heavy database calls and they need to store credentials and they don't want to expose the database endpoint so that stays safely on the server. The end user just see traffic going back and forth. But the other caveat with Blazor Server is that you can have access to the full .NET framework. So if you have legacy code or libraries that aren't .NET Core, .NET Standard compliant, you can do that with Blazor Server. Yeah, so that, that's it for the most part. And then Blazor WebAssembly runs in, in the browser. So the pros and cons, if you're using server, then the server's doing the work for every user. So if you have 10,000 concurrent users, the server's keeping track of 10,000 concurrent sessions and handling the rendering of the UI and everything else. Whereas with Blazor WebAssembly, the majority of the work would be happening in those browsers. So now you're distributing the compute out. And then the only work on the server is when those call into the server and ask for something like hitting a web API endpoint, for example. Okay, so it would sound to me that perhaps uh, that server piece might be a transition to, to maybe break up my application and put it behind an API that might scale a little bit better, right? I mean, does, does uh, Signal R scale to tens of thousands of users like I would expect a regular web server to? It does. So, okay. so you, you can definitely scale the, the server. And uh, there are different reasons. One of the reasons people use Blazor Server today, quite frankly, is that WebAssembly was for the longest time in preview. And so it just wasn't ready for production, whereas Blazor Server became production ready, I believe, with the 3.1.NET Core release. So it's part of that stable release. Uh, it's the WebAssembly version is set to be generally available this week. And so now it can go into production workloads and I'm incredibly excited to see how that impacts adoption because I've had conversations with customers who are really intrigued by the ability to take their WPF and WinForms applications and move them to the web. And because Blazor WebAssembly supports C-Sharp and .NET, they're able to reuse the majority of their, their libraries. They have to redo the UI aspect of it but if they've followed a really clean architecture where a lot of the code is abstracted into reusable class libraries, they can use those exact same class libraries for Blazor. Okay, that's that's great. And and as we said before, if I'm doing the uh, the Blazor and WebAssembly, how it will figure out what needs to be in JavaScript because it uses a fetch and what can be stubbed inside the machine. Will it also make that decision between client and server, or do I need to put my code into two different projects or some other approach? Uh, you need to make that distinction. So the the generic, the, the typical approach, if for some reason you're doing, usually you make a decision, I'm going to use WebAssembly or I'm going to use server. And then if you're using server, pretty much uh, anything's possible, right? You can write code to connect to SQL, to Postgres, to MongoDB, to whatever database backend. You can use existing libraries, et cetera. If you go to WebAssembly, then you're making the decision that I'm in a client model and for most types of data access, I'm actually gonna stand up a, a web API and talk to a web API and do it just as if it's a, a JavaScript client. Now, having said that, there's ways that people who want for whatever reason to host the same project on server and WebAssembly, there's ways that they get around those differences. I might implement an interface called iData service. And the implementation of that interface on the server is to call directly to SQL. 
the implementation in Blazor WebAssembly is to call a web API. The server makes the SQL call, returns the results, and then it comes back from the service. So the code looks the same. I'm still talking to I data service, but the implementation is different. So you do have to make a decision of what you're running in. But then there are a lot of advantages, even if you're using Blazor WebAssembly. One of the things I blogged about, gosh, uh, sometime last year, was the fact that I can create a, a domain object, a, a class in C Sharp, give it behavior, so business logic. I might have requirements, use data annotations to specify this field's this length, etc. And I can share that exact same class between the client and the server. People who do a lot of JavaScript development know that there's data shaped on the C-sharp side and then in JavaScript it's shaped in JSON and and I have to, you know, basically map between the two. Well, Blazor, I can share that same class and, and use it. I can even do data validation in the browser and if you change the behavior of that component, it changes in both places. And then there's technologies like GraphQL, and OData that will even allow you to do a link query in your Blazor WebAssembly app. So I can say select from blah, blah, blah using link. And that gets translated into an API call, picked up on the server, run on the server and comes back. But as a developer, instead of doing a web API call and trying to figure out how do I parse a complex query and have all these flags and parameters to pass it, I just use link. And behind the scenes, that link gets translated and passed back and forth. So the, the being able to share between the client and the server is very powerful. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that's popping into my head is all those productivity enhancements that we've built up over the years in .NET seem to be, trans, you know, they come forward. I don't have to think about it. I can do all that. That's all. That's all terrific stuff. And another thing, you, you said stuff is going live this week, and that means build 2020, right? I'm guessing that's what you mean. So, so folks does. listening to this yeah. somewhat later, yeah, yeah, that's good. That bit you said about the, the, the domain model, I can use the same C-sharp file both to the server and the client. So I don't have to, I, that's one thing I always run into is I'm, TypeScript has the declaration of the data type after the variable and C-sharp has it before. So I end up copy pasting string and Boolean left and right. So I can get rid of all those, that hassle too, it sounds like, right? By just reusing the same class. Exactly. You're actually reusing the same DLL. So if you have a setup where someone provides a library as a service and all you get is a NuGet package reference or a DLL reference, that same DLL can be referenced by the client and server and you share that logic. Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty sweet stuff. Um, <laughs> it is. Yeah. but and, and so I'm guessing if I'm going to, to decide, well, I guess there's one of two scenarios. Either I'm starting something new or perhaps I'm porting something older. Do I need to make all these client versus server decisions up front or can I start down one path and when I run into trouble just move code back, you know, between them? Or is, do you have a, a recommendation or thoughts around that? I think it is important to strategize up front. There's a lot you can do that is pretty transparent between client and server. And it's really, I mean, I'm biased because I'm, I focus on data, but that's really where the decision part comes in is, is where's my data going to live and how do I access that data? So for example, if I'm talking to a SQL server, then I have to be pretty intentional. I can go so far and I can mock up a, a class and, and run that client or server, but when it comes time to actually go live, I'm either using some library like Entity Framework Core to connect directly to SQL Server, or I'm standing up a controller, a web API controller, that does that connection and then using an API call. So it there is a point in time when you start to persist data, but there's apps that I've built that are purely apps that might store stuff locally in the browser. And for example, let's say I'm tracking workouts. Maybe I just need a, a local workout tracker, store that in the browser storage, understanding that that can be cleared. So it's, it's not as, as um, persisted as if it was on a, a server database. But there are apps you can build that will pretty much independently work fine on the server or, or the client transparently. And you know, for me, I was very intrigued by WebAssembly. I had a history of being heavily involved with Silverlight. <laughs> There's a, a lot of um, stories and ideas around Silverlight. 
But let's say that Blazor is not like that simply because it's not on a plugin. It's not a proprietary plugin based model. It's, it's something that will run in any browser and on any platform. When Blazor Server came out, which was after WebAssembly, I was very skeptical about the server because it felt like the old, oh, I forgot what it was called, but there's an old Ajax widget back in the day, the update panel. So you could do this update panel. And it was so noisy and would send so much information, but it turns out that Blazor Server scales well. And as a developer, it is just an incredible platform to write in because you truly write as if you're writing something on the server connecting, but it gives this full client experience. And it makes it really easy because in most apps you have to sort of, you know, there's that famous, oh, I'm a front-end developer, I'm a back-end developer. And this really allows you to build an application that handles all the tiers in one application without spending a lot of time worrying about that disconnection between the client and the server. WebAssembly, you have to think a little bit more about it, but just the fact that you can reference existing libraries. And just as an example, one of the demos I love to give when I'm sharing Blazor is I build a, a blog in the browser and I give you a text box that you can use Markdown. And then of course we need that Markdown to be converted to HTML. Well, without Blazor, you'd probably have to have some JavaScript library or communicate with the server, do it on the server. With Blazor, I can take an existing Markdown library as long as it supports .NET standard then I can pull that into my project, new up whatever class they have, pass it in, get the HTML out, and I'm off to the races. So I can demo parsing Markdown in the browser in about five minutes because of that ability to just reference existing .NET libraries. And it's not a stretch to think that I have data validation code that I want to run in the browser, but I also want to validate the data when it hits my server and so now I don't have to write it twice in two languages. I can use the same DLL. What you're saying that's uh, that's all terrific stuff. Now you mentioned you do a lot of work in data and 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 EF core, and so uh, clearly you, you've done this. And now um, the, the the other part that caught my eye is that you were writing about how you were getting a connection string, and you don't necessarily want those in the browser in clear text, and that's a well-known issue. So what approach did you take to make sure that my connection to my database, whether it be SQL or Cosmos or whatever, how do I make sure that that is secure from people who are using these technologies? So the, the interesting thing is, is that working with Entity Framework Core, one of the things I, I did when I first started this new role was went out to understand why Entity Framework Core is used. And it's a, a huge time saver for the most part for most people. And it's also a, think of it as a standardized API for database access. So there are differences in how different flavors of relational databases work. So if I'm using uh, CockroachDB versus SQL, there's going to be differences. Uh, obviously, something like a Cosmos DB that's non-relational is going to be a little different. But EF Core gives you a set of APIs for defining, this is my data, this is the shape of the data, these are some of the, the data properties and validations, et cetera. So people love that. And right now, even with our leading edge version of EF Core, EF Core 5, that still targets .NET Standard 2.1. So it's not targeting a specific runtime. So my first thought was, wow, this can probably run in Blazor WebAssembly. And then my second thought was, well, which providers will work? SQL's off the table because of the way the connection works. And it really got me to two options. In memory, which would only be useful as a proof of concept because you don't want to obviously do that unless it's like a cache or something. And Cosmos DB, because Cosmos allows a direct HTTP connection. There's two modes, there's gateway and direct. The direct is a TCP connection, but gateway uses HTTPS. So I said, it can use what the browser supports. Let me try it. So I went down this path of, of trying it. And that's what I blogged about. There are some issues. I worked with the team, they fixed the issues. We got it running. But yes, the first example I had uses a master key to connect to the database. That means if you <laughs> have my application and it's in your browser so you can go in and get to the files, I don't care if it's encrypted, if 
the browser can decrypt it, you can decrypt it because you own the browser. And so you could go in and get the master key and then you have control over the entire database. So I talked to the Cosmos DB team and they said, well, you know, that's not our standard of access. You don't use master keys, you use resource tokens. And the resource token API for Cosmos DB is actually really easy to use. And that's a loaded term, I know, easy with the uh, SDK. But, but it literally, I create a concept of a user and I associate that user with the database. And by the way, Cosmos DB does not support Active Directory authentication for APIs. It does for me accessing the portal as an administrator, the control plane, if you will. But data plane is either key or token-based access. So the way it works is you put a user, associate them with the database, and create a set of permissions. These are really fine-grained permissions. I can say you only have read permission to this one container, to this one document, even to what's called a partition key. So a partition key is, is something that, let's have a multi-tenant system. I can ask Cosmos DB based on the company ID to store the data in different structures for distribution, replication, et cetera. And I can say this user can only see that partition key. So it's really fine grained. The other nice thing about this token is it's temporal it can only last from 10 seconds to five hours. So even if it's intercepted somehow, you can only have the permissions of that user and that token will expire. So if you think about how do we authenticate right now with JavaScript apps? We'll use OAuth, we will go to some provider, we might use Azure Active Directory, we might use some other server, but at some point there's a secure connection you establish trust, I trust that you're who you say you are, and then there's a token of some sort that is shared that validates. It's, it's basically a signed token that verifies that you are who you say you are. And so the, the concept for this proof of concept was to create, I, I basically created an identity server. There's something called ASP.NET Identity Server, which is, if you're creating a new web-based project, you can tick, I want authentication, I want it stored in the application, and it scaffolds everything you need to store user profiles and to provide that whole login mechanism. And so Blazor WebAssembly, out of the box, has a way for me to set this up so that I have to be authenticated. So that solved the first issue, how do I verify who the person is? Then I just set up a controller that said, basically, I hit the controller and ask it for a token. I don't pass it any parameters because what the controller does is it looks at who my identity is, my authenticated identity, which is how every other application works. If you're restricting access, you're saying only use this method if you're authorized and based on the identity, this is what you have access to. Right. So, so, so yeah, sorry to interrupt, but you, so you, better, you set up the authentication middleware in ASP.NET and you do the authorized attribute on a controller and you're done, right? It's same same concepts as what I'm used to? Yeah, exactly. The only difference is I then extend it to call out from the server where someone can't find my master key from the server based on your identity. I go out to Cosmos DB and say, give me a set, give me a resource token for this set of permissions. And I pass that back to the client, and then the client authenticates with that token that's sent over a secured channel. And that token will eventually expire, so I go out and I ask for a new one. What's interesting about this approach is that I then, my next step, which I haven't completed yet, but I'm in the process of, I've built a application that successfully authenticates me directly with Azure Active Directory. So now I don't even have to have a server running, but the part that I'm running into right now is taking the token that I have as an authenticated user through Azure Active Directory and using that token to access something like an Azure function that can handle the Cosmos DB set of permissions. At the end of the day, what the proof of concept showed is that I can write an application that talks directly to Cosmos DB in a way that doesn't compromise the master keys for that. It's just using 
tokens, which is what is a pretty common way of of doing uh, security is. And why would you want to do that, you know, as opposed to a web API? And there's really a, a couple reasons. One is that extra effort of standing up a controller with an API and translating that to Cosmos DB calls. Here I can just query the database, make an update or whatever directly without having a, another set of code to sort of translate a call. The other is the way Cosmos DB works. If I have multiple Cosmos DB regions, Cosmos DB automatically detects the region that the request is coming from and finds the lowest latency connection. So now I'm avoiding that relay of going to the server, the server goes to Cosmos DB, comes back to the browser, and I'm going just directly from the, the browser. Yeah, otherwise you'd have to do all that work yourself. So that that's terrific. Now, of course, the next question I have in my head is, is I don't know, and this may be too premature, but is there work or thoughts around making the data plane of Cosmos and or the other data platforms Microsoft has to understand Azure Active Directory natively or using the tokens that are issued by Active Directory? That's a good question. I don't believe that work is is being done, but... I am finding out what libraries are available to at least manage those tokens because basically anything that stood up as a service on Azure has some form of ability. Like if I stand up an Azure function, I can secure that function with Azure Active Directory. So there is a story for once you're authenticated to talking to other services that are Azure Active Directory services. And I'm actually working on a piece of code that I'm going to publish as a public repo to show what that, that looks like. So you can imagine if I'm using, for example, graph, right, and building my organizational dashboard that, you know, adds productivity that we could take the authenticated user. And, and then we really store no credentials except the endpoint we authenticate against, right? You have a tenant that you authenticate against, but once you do that, we're just passing that same authentication around to different services and validating that identity of that user. Now, whether or not services like Cosmos that don't have a data plane way of accessing, that I'm not so clear of. But what's interesting is, you know, I'm interested in making the data experience as easy as possible. And a lot of people are fine building web APIs that do simple things like read an entity, write an entity, delete an entity. What gets complicated is when you have a very complex query. I didn't realize just how complicated these requests can be until I stepped into this role and we get issues against Entity Framework Core because Link itself can't parse some of these expressions. They're so complex. And then how do you serialize that over the wire? There's a few existing ways you can do it. I mentioned GraphQL and OData. One of the things our team is, is thinking about, and we there's a lot that goes into deciding if we actually do something like this, is being able to have a, a serialization so that you could have a provider. That's what we call the flavors of EF core that talk to different databases. So ostensibly, one of the goals is perhaps to have a provider that's a client version of the SQL provider. I write code just as if I'm on the server. I use link queries, I do updates, whatever. What that provider does is serializes those requests, sends them over a wire protocol of your choice, whether it's HTTP, maybe it's gRPC web, and then the server picks it up, throws it into the real SQL adapter and issues that request. So we're looking at ways to make that experience easier. The challenge is always security. Just because I can accept the payload on an endpoint doesn't mean that that payload doesn't contain some sort of request to access data in a way that I don't want users to. And that's where the, the challenge always lies, right? When we design these systems. But if you're dealing with something that is more REST-based, like for example, I go back to Graph, right? I just did a Channel 9 video that was released about uh, the Graph Toolkit and how easy it is to do things like add a login control and things like that. So I can imagine that experience 
being very direct and straightforward from a Blazor WebAssembly application. Great. So now we've mentioned your blog a few times. We should probably tell folks, well, what is your, your blog address if they want to catch up on some of these? And obviously we can put a link in the show notes, but where do people find your blog? It's a very creative blog name. So my name is Jeremy Lickness, and I say Lickness without the C because it's L-I-K-N-E-S-S, but it's blog jeremylickness.com. That, that's great. And now I can envision a lot of folks maybe kicking the tires and have feedback. You, you said there's a lot of things you're still working on and the team is, is contemplating. Is there a good way for folks to get feedback to you about what they're struggling with or ideas that they have? Sure. So there is a, a way to contact me through the blog, which uh, Twitter is the main way that I usually communicate with people. And I, I have open direct messages, which means even if I don't follow someone, they can just come out of the blue, <laughs> send me a direct message, and we'll link that and, way. And that's how I found you. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there you go. So you direct yeah. message me. Yeah. I also, my, my email, I give that out freely at Microsoft. It's my first name dot last name at Microsoft.com. And uh, people are free to, to send me that email. If it's something related to Blazor or Entity Framework Core. There are other methods. For example, Entity Framework Core, if people have issues, we are a very open source team. We do everything out in the open. So going to the GitHub repo for Entity Framework Core and filing an issue is a, a great way to get response from the team. But if it's just a general question or where do I find resources or where can I look to do this, but everything I do as far as blog posts, projects, et cetera, I usually send those out over my Twitter stream. And that's a, a great way to, to stay up to date. Like when I have this new release, I'm also on LinkedIn, same name. And uh, I have a Facebook page that's just technology focused that is also similar. So a few different ways people can find me and keep track of what's happening and also ask questions. So that's great. And and you mentioned you've done a Channel 9 video. You've done more than a few of those, I believe, right? Uh, so folks can also see you by uh, looking there and get... So I really appreciate you explaining all this new tech to us. Look forward to the stuff that, that's coming out. And and your tip about using EF Core to read a uh, Cosmos database intrigues me. So uh, certainly is uh, some, on my list of things to, to try as well. So I really appreciate your time today and uh, look forward to the new stuff you guys got coming out soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the, the time and uh, being able to. I think WebAssembly and Blazor are just incredible technologies. And if anyone listening hasn't explored those, it's something to go out and even just over a weekend experiment with. And not just Blazor itself as the Microsoft technology that's on top of WebAssembly, but WebAssembly itself is really fun to learn and play with. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 